Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with journalist and writer Sarah Dingle to talk about her book, Brave New Humans. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. You're welcome. So uh, tell us about this project and how it came about. Sure. Um, Well, this book is about the last decade of my life, really. Um, And I never really thought I would write a book about it until I spoke to uh, my publisher, Arwen Summers, and... um, she said, I think you should do something about the broader uh, landscape of donor conception, telling it through the lens of your personal story. So that's what I've tried to do. Um, So I I am donor conceived. I'm not someone who has used donor conception. I am the result, if you like, of Mm. that process. Yeah, and I think that's partially what makes this book so compelling is that it's such a personal lens that you come at at the issue from. And I think... Um, a lot of people, including myself, I, I, I never got um, a strong sense of quite how badly wrong things have gone in this industry and how commercial it is as well. Um, can, I mean, I, I don't know how you could summarise. It's, it's, it's a very, <laughs> very detailed, um, really interestingly in, investigated book. Um, but I guess is, is, if you could give it like a top two or three things that are really broken... <laughs> In this, <laughs> in this industry. Well, so... Um, the takeaways, I guess. Yeah. Look, one of the reasons why I've written this book, Joel, is because people say to me, so, you know, what's the problem or why is it so bad? And I find it very hard to explain each time exactly what has gone wrong in donor conception because pretty much everything has gone wrong. We started off on the wrong foot and we've continued that way. So donor conception, um, people think of it... These days is something that is, I suppose, mainly practiced by same-sex couples or single mothers, would-be single mothers, um, whereas in fact donor conception has been around for more than 100 years and it has been practiced in Australia at least since the 1940s. So very soon we will have our centenary of Australian donor-conceived people being made, if you like, people being made by a for-profit industry uh, without any national regulation or safeguards for the human rights of the babies and the adults produced. So donor conceived people in Australia, it depends on what state and territory you're in as to whether you have any rights to your biological family at all. And even where those rights exist, they are incomplete. Um, There is, for example, today in New South Wales, my own state, there is no right to know your biological father or your biological mother if you are the result of an egg donation or your biological father and mother if you are the result of an embryo donation unless you were born after the 1st of January 2010. So we're looking at 11-year-olds and under. For everyone else, there's nothing. There's nothing. And in my case, when I went back to... um, First of all, I I didn't know that I was donor-conceived. I only found out when I was 27. Um, And that was quite a shock because my social father who had raised me died when I was 15 and I had never suspected that he wasn't my actual father. Um, So when I got over the shock of that, I went back to find the records of my conception to see what I could find out. And I knew it was unlikely that they would give me the name of my biological father because nobody seems to be interested in doing that throughout this entire practice anywhere. Um, But I thought there would be some clues and and perhaps some non-identifying details like family medical history. And That was my first problem. When I went back to find the records, first of all, they said, you're not entitled to them because 
even though we've made you, your mother is the patient, not you. Mm. You're nothing in our system. So you have no right to access these files. And then when my mother gave me the permission to look at these files, which were her files, I discovered that the donor code in those files had actually been cut out and thrown away. So what was cut out was not the name of my biological father, because that would never be recorded in the file anyway. His identity was recorded by a code. And that code told anyone who looked through that file how many, for instance, how many children that donor had fathered. Um, you could trace, if there was any congenital family disease, you could trace using the code, the children. Mm. Um, but they cut out that code so that no answers could ever be found. And they did it not just for my file, but for dozens, dozens of files throughout the clinic, which was a, a public hospital clinic. That then was privatised by this <laughs> huge corporation that yeah. essentially sells human tissue and makes babies. It yeah. is so horrifying, the scale of this thing. <laughs> I, I just did not... I mean, I, I went to a fertility clinic when, uh, you know, when I was trying to have a kid and um, we didn't end up using um, donor material. But the way that the whole thing is pitched is as if everything's clean and shiny, everything will be looked after. It's very corporate um, environment. So I, I think one of the things I thought going into this book is that there was way more track kept of how many children came from single donors. That was one of the things that shocked me the most is how completely unregulated that is and how little knowledge or information there is available to anyone about any of this. You know, that, I know. And how many potential children there are out in the world who are related to each other who don't know. So I wish I could tell you how many brothers and sisters I have, but I don't know. Um, the only answers... I have obtained on that topic have come to me from my biological father himself because the clinic that made me would not give me any answers, the specialists, the business that bought them, the government has not kept track of these things. No one else seems to have um, any answers they can give me on that situation. Um, and I know from my research that the, I think the largest sibling group in Australia so far that I know of is 48, but that is by no means, you know, the biggest or the be-all or end-all. There are um, sibling groups overseas that number more than 100. Um, and the thing is that we will never know the, the true scale of this because no country anywhere in the world has kept a record of all their donor-conceived citizens. Mm. If they have kept records, it's only in recent years. So they're effectively keeping track of donor-conceived people who are still children. That's how recent it yeah. is. And the records, you know, you talk about the records being mysteriously or conveniently destroyed yeah. by fire and floods yeah. way more often than fires and floods seem to actually happen. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It seems, and I was also shocked by, in the same vein, how often when legal or political attention gets put on this issue, how often the response to it is fought by the fertility industry. Can you tell us a bit about why you think that is? So in Australia, we've had a few parliamentary inquiries which have canvassed, you know, whether all donor-conceived people should be allowed to know who their biological parents are, which when you say it like that, to me, sounds like a no-brainer. Um, but uh, certain interests have fought these proposals very hard. And it's not actually donors 
fighting this en masse, which you might expect. You might think, oh, look, there's a bunch of men who donated sperm in the 70s thinking there would be no consequences to their actions and now they don't want the truth to come to light. It's actually not donors opposing these changes. It is um, state-based Australian medical associations. It is fertility clinics. It is the parent companies of fertility clinics. It is fertility specialists. It is the people who control the information. It's not, it's not the human beings whose materials they are using. Mm. I was fascinated by the idea. You, you um, explicate this in a section of the book, which I just found really flooring, where you talked about um, that this wasn't necessarily just about not being able to get donors, but it was about being able to reassure potential parents that they could essentially cut the biological um, parents out of the process and be reassured that the child will be theirs. Is, is that how you feel about it? That essentially it's, it's, about, it's about protecting parents and selling something to parents rather than... Uh, yeah. yeah, I feel like I'm talking for you, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I think there is definitely that element to it. And, and it's, it's such an insidious thing to do because you can never say to someone, here's a child that I've made from someone else's DNA. It, it's, it's, but it's, it's all contained within the, the tiny package of this baby and there will never be any repercussions. The past will never come back to haunt you. Everything is fine, clean slate. No one is a clean slate. Mm. We all come from... Lines and lines and lines and lines of ancestors of biology, of history, of culture. And, and to, we know that in the case of adoption, for instance, we know that to sever someone causes enormous damage. But it's like with um, donor conception, for some reason, that doesn't matter anymore. I'm expecting this book to sort of irritate people or cut, <laughs> cut across... Oh dear. Um, <laughs> I don't think it should. I think it's something that's obviously, it seems to me, a fundamental right that has been ignored by the, by the culture. But um, are you anticipating it? Who are you anticipating pushback from? Uh, are you... uh, um, look, I am worried about that um, because it is a personal story um, and it's scary to put all that out there just to be hated. Um, but... Donor conception has gone on for so many decades. The majority of the damage done necessarily is by heterosexual couples. And I just think I cannot, I cannot let this go on any longer. That's why I've written the book. Yeah. It and must it, be said. And it feels like there's a sort of righteous animating force behind this because it is a personal story as well that I find really um, refreshing because it, it, it's hard... It's hard to argue. It's your story. You can't uh, turn around and tell you that you don't, you shouldn't have the right to that. I feel, and in all, in so many other respects in our culture, we are so respectful of children, and maybe not of children's rights in all circumstances, obviously. But it feels like a really big black hole, mm. or like a blind spot in the culture. Mm. Is that how you feel about it? Absolutely. In all other areas of society, we put the child first. Because we understand that children are vulnerable parties and we need to protect them. We need to stand up for their rights because otherwise those rights tend to get overlooked or trashed. And yet when it comes to donor conception and the fertility industry using the DNA of, of third parties to make babies, the welfare of the child is not put first. And there is always an intended child. There is no accidental happy conception in donor conception, there is always an intended child. So everything you do to make that child must put the rights and the welfare of that child first. 
Yeah, and that's such a difficult sort of moral and legal quandary in our culture when we talk about other issues to do with unintended and intended children, I think, that aren't that are theoretical and not real yet. Uh, and I think that's that's possibly where where the book will cut across different ideological spectrums and and it's where people who have supported this issue maybe fall down on very different political spectrum to you on other issues, I imagine. Um, have you felt that way, that there are sort of strange bedfellows in this, on this topic? You know, Look, to be honest, when it comes to the rights of ch- the child and donor conception, there are no bedfellows. I am alone in this bed. Mm. <laughs> it is just me and other donor-conceived people because, um, because we've been so overlooked and forgotten, it's like everyone who has a stake in this is not on our side. Mm. That that is how it feels reading it. It's it's it's, it's excruciating. Yeah. Um, but um, I I would love to keep talking to you about this, but I think ultimately we need to put it into the podcast. But I highly highly recommend reading this book if you are at all interested in this issue, or if you're considering having a kid, regardless of how you're going to have that kid. I think this is going to affect you deeply, and. Um, it's just a really wonderful, interesting, frustrating and saddening read in so many ways. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and to talk to us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Uh, and you can buy Brave New Humans by Sarah Dingle from booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget... You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.